Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special, very special, but as Doc will tell you, very regular, Mailbag Edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is the aforementioned doctor, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? Good day, Captain. I'm good, you know. It's regular, it's uh, special, it's Sunday, all of those things. <laughs> it's all of it's those actually things. not really Sunday, it's Thursday. Well, today's Thursday, but today's now also Sunday, which is weird. Yeah. We're time travelling. We time travel. We are every week. So if you're the doctor, are you Doctor Who? Do we, do we, have, do we have a confession that you need to tell I'm me Doctor about? Who, I don't know. <laughs> Dr. Jackal, Dr. Hyde. Does that make me the, who's the, what's the doctor's helper's name? Is doctor's help? I don't think she has a name. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> we're gonna, mate, we have got an, I say this most weeks, we've got an absolutely stuffed mailbag. So I'm going to try and make us get through this as quickly as we possibly can. So we get through as many questions as we can. That aim will fall hopelessly at the first hurdle, but I'll do my level best. I you? will talk less. I have every, no, well, I, I promise to talk less. I have every intention of doing it. <laughs> Both you and I know the chance of it happening are not as high. All right, here we go. A uh, question from Hus or Hus. Uh, Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a loyal listener on both Friday and Sunday podcasts. I'm also a Motley Fool subscriber for both Extreme Opportunities and Game Changers. Thank you both for all the recommendations and the consistent podcast. Well, you're welcome, Hoos. Thank you for the question. I have two short questions. Well, there you go. Two questions then. On, and I want to ask the following. Firstly, I recently bought Afterpay during the March low, and then I took up the share purchase plan at a high price. How should I sell half of my shares? Do I take the SPP price so I don't have to pay too much tax or should I book a profit on the weighted average buy price? What are the tax implications? Now, I'm not going to let you answer this one, Jock, yet because I have a, a confession to make. We had a couple of listeners during the week, including Jeffrey and Emma, who reminded me, uh, a couple of others too, that I completely screwed up the inheritance tax question last week. So the inheritance tax cost base is, I'm told by the reliable sources, the cost base of the person who is actually gifting or, or is leaving the shares behind, not the cost base you acquire them for when you make the inheritance. So for the record, for anyone who let me know that, thank you for giving me that feedback. It's also why, as we say relatively regularly, don't take tax advice from us. Ask proper tax accountants. We're good investors. We're less good at tax accounting. So there you go. Ask questions of your <laughs> proper tax advisor when it comes to inheritance taxes. But yes, apparently the cost base is the cost base of the person who bought the shares and who has passed them down to you not the price you get them at. All right, that's out of the way, mate. But to Hoos's question, what is the best option? What are the tax implications? Sell the cheap shares and book a larger profit or sell the more expensive shares and pay a little bit less tax? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because um, this, this looks like this is more of a tax question it because is. you know it depends on how much profit you want to book. I think... I'm not 100% sure. I think you can choose which lot you are selling. You can. As long as you know which lot you're selling. And as and long you as you consistently use that approach hereafter. So once you start ah, that okay. path, you must maintain that approach. Uh, but uh, can that approach always be, I will sell the higher priced shares first? No, but you can, if you, you could, so you could sell them, apparently you can sell them a weighted average price across all of the shares, but then you can't then go back to then selling single tranches of shares at different times. So if you start by saying, I'm going to sell it tranche by tranche, you need to continue doing it that way. Right. And so, you could choose which tranche, I yes, guess. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. you absolutely can. 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> my, my answer for this one is that you know this is a tax. Uh, it is a tax um, optimization question, yep. which is best answered by your tax advisor, accountant. That's what I actually do. I'd not try to do, solve these problems on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, take into account things like now. In this case, it looks like who's bought both lots of shares this year. So there's no long term versus short term capital gains tax implications. But do always remember. By all means, sell if you want to sell, but also remember that if you hold the shares for more than a year, you halve your tax bill, all things being equal. So just be mindful of that, uh, particularly if it's in a personal name. Super is a different question, but generally speaking, you'll, you'll halve your tax bill. So, so think about that if you want to hold for longer. I'm not saying you should, just saying if you do, there are differences. Um, generally speaking, it depends on whether you can use or whether you have tax losses to offset, whether you've got gains and other assets, uh, whether you're likely to earn more or less money this year or next year. So where you want to book that income. Uh, if, for example, you knew you're going to take next year off, you might want to hold and make you get a better tax gain next year than this year. Equally, if you're expecting to earn a whole lot of more money next year, um, then you might want to sell the the higher tax um, parcel this year and then pay tax on a lower tax rate. So lots and lots and lots of considerations. We're not going to tell you what you should do. A, because we can't give personal advice and B, because we're, as I've already made abundantly clear, not tax advisors. So uh, we, would, we would suggest you go and see an accountant and ask that question. All right. The interesting question that follows this one, how do you calculate the price to book value and return on equity on most of the non-profit making tech companies? He said, is are tech just speculative, just speculative investments like mining stocks? And he says, I wish you both well and staying safe during this uncertain time. Kind regards, Hoos. So, mate, um, I don't imagine you've ever calculated a price to book value on your tech investments. Is that right? I was going to say that I, you do not calculate these things for the tech. <laughs> well, you could calculate return on equity for those yeah, that have returns. Yes, um, and, and equity, but yes. Right. Well, everybody has equity, right? But they do. They may not have returns. I book value. That's a whole different question. Right. So, yeah, the, the short answer for this is for, uh, you know, for a lot of stuff, we just don't calculate yeah. these things. Yeah. Um, the return on equity is, is probably relevant for, uh, you know, very multi style, mm-hmm. uh, you know, profit gushing, yeah. uh, you know, blue chips. Like you could do that for like things like Apple, Google. But uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a question of using the right tools for the right job. Um, you don't have to buy tech companies uh, if you're a sort of investor who prefers to use more concrete metrics like price to book value or return equity there are other businesses you can look at to use for those now there's two ways to look at that right one is to say stick with your knitting only only investing companies you can usually uh, reasonably use those those uh, metrics for that's one way the other way is as doc's already mentioned maybe think about a different approach I think there's a, there's a there's a halfway point. You talk about you know a tech company is just speculative plays such as mining stocks because they don't have profits often or they don't have book values that are meaningful. Um, I think that might. I think there's a, there's a there's a third point, third way in between those two, right? Which is to say, some tech companies are absolutely as speculative mining stocks. Some tech companies are also more blue chip than the blue chips. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't treat all tech the same. Even pro, even loss making tech. There's plenty of examples of um, Amazon, which I own. Zero, which the Motley Fool owns, a business that have been loss making and yet have clear paths to prosperity. So, um, if you can, if you if you're interested to and you want to do it, um, have a think about other metrics you might use rather than try and make um, those companies fit those metrics. Now, of course, if that's not comfortable for you, then by all means stick to your knitting. As Doc mentioned on Friday, there's more than one way to one way to skin a cat. There's no single best way to invest, but that's probably one way to think about investing. Any more on that, buddy? No. Question from Daniel. Daniel says, good morning, Captain and Doc. Morning, Daniel. Long-time listener and subscriber who loves your work and how you have personally ch- turned me over in the past few years from a total novice 
to a confident investor. That's pretty good news, mate. We're, we're stoked about that. Thanks, Daniel. He said, I really enjoyed having Andrew and Ed previously as special guests. It's fun having the different takes and brackets, although you two are the stars. And Daniel, that's exactly why you're having your question answered is all I'm saying. You, you're obviously, you're a discerning man. You, you clearly understand talent, um, excellence, uh, ability, good looks, humor when you see it. And look, Ed and Andrew are fine. They're, they're, they're perfectly fine. But he's right. We're the stars, aren't we, Doc? Oh, I think I agree. <laughs> <laughs> all right. He says, my question is that I subscribe to two services. Dividend Investor and Extreme Opportunities. Oh, dear. He says, sorry, Captain, share advisor is next. It bloody well should be, Daniel. That's all I'm saying. And while I won't name the company as I pay for the service, I was surprised that a recommendation came up as both a DI and an EO stock. Whilst I did not, whilst I did buy this company, not stock, good man, I'm interested in how a company could cover both aspects as I assumed EO is new and upcoming exciting stocks while Dividend Investor is for more solid, stable companies. Any input would be appreciated. Now, we don't want to make it too inside baseball, Doc. A lot of people listening here aren't members and so we don't want to, we don't want to be too specific and esoteric for people who aren't members and don't necessarily share this conundrum, but it's a worthwhile question being answered. How can a stock be both a decent dividend payer and an up, up and coming fast grower. I don't know. I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna answer that Daniel's question from my perspective. I actually can't remember which company he's talking about. By the way, I'm sure you can. Um, I'm gonna say that's pretty good. A, if two of my colleagues recommend a stock's great, I think that's pretty cool. Plus, if it meets both criteria, if it's paying a dividend and it's a fast growing kind of your high pro, high high potential stock, I'm pretty happy about that. Quite honestly, um, but it does feel like. Is, is this the horse designed by a committee? Is this the is this the zebra? Um, is this the kind of you know the the uh, what is it? What's a horse and a donkey combined? A mule? Um, in any case, let me <laughs> ditch the metaphors. What's going on, mate? How can a company be in both services? Yes, I think I know which company uh, Daniel is talking about. So uh, I, I think without going into specific details, I think there's one uh, a key point to note. Uh, the key point to note would be that this particular company that uh, one is thinking about was probably recommended at EO a while back. Oh, okay. Okay. And so it's an evolution story. Yeah, it's a little bit of an evolution story. So, you know, the company was uh, riskier at that time, a higher mm. reward at mm. that time. Uh, it didn't pay a dividend at that time, I think, mm. when we had recommended it, but started paying relatively quickly. Uh, and uh, over that time has become a relatively more stable company, less growth, and um, you know it's be- become more of the you know stable growing mm. company. So mm. it's a it's a company. It's a gr- it's a story of riskier to less risky but less growth sort of story. And um, yeah, so like I mean, once a company is on on our scorecard, mm. we we don't remove it just because yeah, right. it is. Um, you know, it's starting to mature. It's starting to, to mature. Play out. Yep. Play out. <clears throat> That's number one. And once a company is on the scorecard, it could still become a re recommendation, for example, mm, from time mm, to time. Mm. Largely because, you know, it's a company we're familiar with. Sometimes what happens is, you know, the, the best stock to own is the one that you already have, uh, or the best stock to buy again is the one that you already have. So mm, yeah. um, it may not strictly fit the definition of extreme new. Yeah, right. But it's already on the scorecard. It has, you know, it has seen an evolution and we. We would keep it. We would not remove something. Buy more of a great company. Yeah. Yeah. We would not remove something just because it has played out and is changing. Is is the point? I guess it's it's a really good point, mate. Because you know, think about and let let me pick a couple of US examples because it's easy. Apple and Amazon, after their first double or their second double or their third doubles, would have been businesses that were no longer extreme in the same way. The raw upside was no longer as big. 
but they still had like you know 10x 20x ahead of them each um so you know to that point and we're not saying these companies necessarily the next apple or amazon but to some degree giving giving up that point saying oh well the the, the opportunity's not there anymore i'm going to go and put money somewhere else you would miss out on massive massive gains so um we want to find them early but we just want to hold them and let them do their thing. Yeah, so that's that's the basic idea. Yeah, you find stuff early and then you sort of hold them through maturity. You want to get out probably before they like die, like they, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they you know, yeah, they hit sort of the the other end of yes. the spectrum. But or it becomes AMP as we discussed on Friday. Yeah, I don't want to say AMP, but okay, I'll say AMP, it's okay. okay, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, or Hewlett Packard or whatever you want to think about. Nice. So yeah, it's it's that idea. It's just that. Buy them early, hold them, hold them, hold them, hold them. Along the way, you know, re-recommendations are good because it's a way yep. of rebalancing your portfolio, adding more to it, you know, add to your winners and sort of that idea. I like it. My next question comes from Joseph. I'm trying to get through this as quickly as we possibly can. Joseph Scott, love the show and YouTube bloods are great. Thank you, Joseph. You began the podcast conversation about the difficulty and time-consuming operations that go into corporate financial annual or quarterly accounting. Have you heard of Blackline Incorporated? Automatic book closing software founder led to... Fantastic idea, an interesting company in my portfolio. Keep it coming. Another happy Extreme Opportunities member. Go on Irban. Cheers, mate. Joseph. I'd never heard of Blackline, mate, did you? I have heard of Blackline. Okay. Um, I know some people who own it. Right. Um, some very credible people who own it. Tempted? Um, yes, it's, 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 it's an interesting company. I have not looked at it very closely. Okay. To, um, again, it's one of those things, right? It's another SaaS company. Yep. I have plenty of SaaS in my own portfolio. You do have plenty of SaaS. Um, so do I really need to own you know, Blackline? Probably not. But yeah, it's an interesting company. I, I The only thing I'll say about it is that the, the reason I was interested in it, that I, I know a few people who I respect a lot, mm. um, uh, have talked about it or have you know owned the owned the shares in this company, and therefore that piqued my interest. But I didn't, I haven't done any significant work or even actually haven't even looked properly at its uh, its earnings, recent earnings even, mm. to um, to have a view as to whether or not it, you know it's something I want to buy and stuff like that. So mm. yeah, so mm. I, I know of it, but I don't know much about it. Interesting, man. I know nothing about it, so I have nothing more to add. But uh, I'm glad Joseph's a happy Extreme Opportunities member. Nice work, Doc. You're doing a good job. Next one's from Tendai. G'day, Scott and Doc. 10 out of 10 podcast. I absolutely love the jokes and the occasional investment advice. <laughs> I, love the way, I love the way that's That's promote. a joke? Well, I, I think, I assume, I'm hoping so. I, I hope the intention is we're telling lots of jokes and occasionally giving investment advice. I think that's the whole turning the podcast on its head thing. Right, right. I'm okay. sure that's, well, he says he loves it, so that's got to be good, right? Probably. Let's let's assume so. Let's we can assume, just assume. Let's assume so. P.S. I have recently recommended Motley Full Service to two more of my friends. Still waiting for the check in the mail. Mate, it's definitely in the mail. Just, just stand by the letterbox. It'll be there. Just trust me. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Check's in the mail. Um, reminds me of a very bad joke, which I won't tell now. All right. My question. I noticed that share prices are usually higher in the morning and can come down by up to 2% over the course of the day. I know the Motley Full investment philosophy is to buy and hold for the long term. So 2% is not that significant in the scope of things. However, I'd rather keep that 2% in my pocket than give it away. Assuming I have decided to buy a particular company, is there a better time during the day to buy? Doc. Gosh, um, I don't have a view as to whether this is even true or not, or it's mm. just random, or it's just a fact that he, um, you know, Tinder has observed this, uh, and on those occasions he has observed it, it has been the case... I don't know. Like, I mean, I really don't know whether there's a relationship between morning and afternoon trade and on average prices. Um, 
Yeah, that's number one. Number two is, you know, basically you don't want to look at average, you know, what the market index is doing at any point in time. Mm. You want to look at the company you want to buy and sort of have a view on where you think its price is going to be, you know, five years, ten years down the lane. And and then you can make a decision as to buy or not. So mm. it's not a consideration for me, but, you know, it's an interesting observation. If it is true, I don't know if it is true. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, cautiously and respectfully say I don't think it's true. Okay. I would I would be remarkably surprised because there are so many computers doing stuff these days that if the computers actually were doing their thing, they would be uh, they would already have arbitraged this away, right? They they'd be taking advantage of that. No institutional trader would be buying in the afternoon. They'd buy in the morning or vice versa. Sell in the morning, sell in the afternoon. Um, it would flatten itself out in, in that sort of something that was so easily obviously assessed and able to be traded against. That would be arbitrage away super quickly, in my opinion. I'll also say for what it's worth, um, for example, yesterday, the market as a whole, not individual stocks, but the market as a whole, um, shot up right through the day. So opened low and got higher as the day went on, exactly the opposite to, to this particular uh, observation. So I would I would speculate, and I, and if look, if you've done the work tender and you know this to be true, then my apologies for doubting you. Uh, I would speculate that you're probably seeing a, a pattern that either isn't there um, or one that's happening in a small number of cases but doesn't necessarily represent the entire lot. You know, if, if you toss three heads in a row, uh, you can say, well, it seems to always come up heads. I'll go heads next time. We know that uh, in that circumstance that the movements are completely unrelated. And so uh, the fact that there are three heads in a row doesn't make the next one more likely to be a head or a tail. It's still a 50-50 chance on the next coin toss. Now, this is not this is not a completely random sample. There are people involved. There are computers. There are other people. So it's entirely possible that it works out that way for some reason. Um, I would be very, very surprised if that held for any length of time. Um, otherwise, those in the market would have probably already arbitraged that away. If if you knew that was true, you could you could buy in the morning, sell in the afternoon, or buy in the afternoon, sell in the morning. You do it over and over again, you'd be a squillionaire. I mean, computers. We, I mean, Doc, you and I will go and program something right now to go do exactly that, and by the end of the year, we'll be in the Bahamas. So, uh, don't I don't so don't doubt th- that's your observation. Um, there is an element of psychological bias there too, right? Sometimes we see these things and expect they're, they're the case. For, for a while, I think three or four stocks I bought in a row, Doc, all went down on the first day after I bought them. And you start to think, oh, bloody hell, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at this. Um, it just, it's one of those things that tends to play in your mind. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume it may not necessarily be hold for the whole, the whole lot. I certainly wouldn't try and time it. I don't think there's any value necessarily in doing it. No obvious value anyway. Now, Tenno then finishes with this. Scott, have you bought any of the recommendations from Doc that you promised to buy a month ago. Hashtag happy to hold you accountable. Hashtag full on. Uh, no, no, I have not. Now, you and I took this doc before the, before the podcast. I recall saying I'd buy Mercado Libre and I thought it was something that you'd mentioned, but you told me I'd mentioned it. I'd bought it up. So in fact, I'm only promising to buy a stock I thought of. Is that, is that what happened? That's exactly what it is. Okay. I'm, you a, just, smart, I'm a smart you, guy, obviously. You just prom- promised to buy a Mercado <laughs> Libre and, and I think <laughs> Shopify because... Because that's what you want. Well, but I think I promised to buy any you suggested. I mean, I know you want me to, but I don't think I did, did I? Did I no, you didn't. Any? No, I didn't think so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm off the hook. Yeah, you're off the hook. Probably could cost me yeah, a fortune. But, but, but you should buy, is you what did, he's saying. You did spend the morning telling me how much money I'd lost by not listening to you. A lot. For those listeners who, who weren't privy yeah, a, like a lot. Them, a lot. to our morning between, conversation. Between 5X and 10X is what I said. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, dear. All right. Can we move on? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. All right. Question from Stephen. Dear Scott and Doc, I love your podcast and your considered responses to listener questions. I would thus value your feedback on my question. That's fair. I'm looking at two ETFs listed in the US. The codes are ARKW and GBTC. Now, I don't generally love love ticker codes, Stephen, but I'll let this one through just because just I'm a nice bloke and you've been kind. 
ARKW invests in next-gen internet businesses, Doc. Its business holding is Tesla. I've listed the top 10 holdings, so you don't need to look it up. Thank you, mate. GBTC is an ETF that holds Bitcoin in a trust structure. Oh, G and then BTC being Bitcoin. Right, okay, I get it. I believe it's the only way to own Bitcoin without actually holding it. Obviously, these are both very different animals, but they look interesting to me. What do you both reckon, Stephen? Which I, I'm going to assume, Doc, of those two, ARKW appeals to you more than GBTC. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I have no views on on GB, yeah, GBTC. So right. I, I think like so, Ark. I really like Ark. Um, so Ark is the company behind this. Yes. So right. Ark, uh, it's run by Kathy Wood. I think she is one of the smartest people out there. Um, you know, the Ark makes a lot of research available. Right, uh, right. I actually love their research. Uh, they really, um, you know. Uh, they they really think long term, okay. and they think we like that, and and they really think about disruptive technology and their potential, right? Cool. And um, yeah, so so this particular fund I think has uh, as Tesla as, as their largest holding. Uh, there are a couple of other funds, but but yeah, overall whether it's Tesla or not, I, th- I think again they're um, yeah. So they hold Tesla, Square, Roku, um, you know, Facebook. Uh, and things like that. So um, again, I think that it's 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 a fascinating uh, ETF. It's one of those active ETFs where you know the the manager is trading and everything is is yeah. still disclosed, and they have st- stunning uh, results. I think uh, the the performance is uh, you'd not believe this. So this is for ArcW. ArcW's uh, five year compounded growth rate is thirty four point two percent. Wow. That is impressive. Three years is 40.8%. Is it more impressive? <laughs> more impressive, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, these guys are, re- these guys are you know, they're very rule-breakery in a, in a, mm-hmm. in a very mm-hmm. David Gardner style, yep. uh, I'd say. So I like, I like them. Do I have, I haven't really done any research into that particular, particular fund that okay. he's talking about, largely because, again, I know what they have in the top five or six. Right, and, okay, and, okay. and And I, I watched their research, but I'm, I do not invest. I have not invested in their um, in the ETF largely because I do not necessarily invest in ETFs. Yeah, right. Okay. But yeah, for somebody interested in disruptive innovation and they you know don't want to do the hard work and just want to buy an ETF, this is a good one to buy in my view. Nice, I like that. Yeah. I have no view on either of them other than I value Doc's view on tech. So that seems pretty good to me, and those returns are phenomenal. If you want to invest in disruptive tech, I reckon that might be a good option to look at. Um, I would. Uh, GBTC for my view I have no specific view on Bitcoin other than no one knows so whatever you invest in that is pure speculation it's just my simple view uh, there, there is no fundamental way of valuing Bitcoin you could take any one of number of world views about what might happen next and I think that Bitcoin is the way to do it uh, I share none of those world views and I certainly don't think Bitcoin is the way I would do it if I did um, I guess I mean, if you desperately want to do something like that, I'd probably just go to the old standard of gold because at least you know the market has arrived at some reasonable value as to its view, and so viewers to its value, I should say. And so if you know if, if your if your thought is the world goes to pot and all of a sudden we need something else, gold I think will beat Bitcoin. Or if it doesn't, it's certainly less likely not to. In other words, the the risk and reward is just simply narrower. Uh, and for me, if I was looking for some sort of hedge or some sort of reason to not invest in stocks, I'd probably be hedging something I believed in rather than rather than getting both wrong, which would be a pretty big mistake. But Again, I'm not saying it can't go up, it can do anything because it's in that land of speculation right now. And if it went up tenfold or fell by 90%, I wouldn't be surprised either direction. So I'd, I'd give it a miss personally. Question from Jason, mate. Dear Scott and Doc, 
I'm a member of Share Advisor. See, about bloody time we had a decent <laughs> listener around here was in the right product stock. Uh, I enjoyed reading your commentary on the two most powerful warriors sent to all members. Such important advice on the importance of long-term investment. Now, this was one that Andrew Leggett wrote, not me, uh, and talking about it's a line from a famous book. I can't remember actually. I'll look it up. Um, but talking about the two two warriors being patience and time. Um, and he was saying he got some inspiration from reading, uh, and that was that was his that was his thought. I absolutely agree with this strategy, says Jason. However, in the short term, the economy and market will soon face the loss of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Superannuation withdrawals will cease. Mortgage deferrals will stop. The US Federal Reserve will eventually slow down its quantitative easing. How do you think these changes will affect the different sectors of the share market? What can investors do to prepare for these changes? Keep up the great work. Full on. Jason. It's a really difficult question, Doc, so I'm going to ask you to answer it first. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love this. Uh, so this Leggett's uh, thought about patience. And Good, time. isn't it? Yeah. This is brilliant because... You know, everybody wants to get rich tomorrow. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? Uh, but the slow and steady is almost the surest way of doing it, right? It, it It's it's genuinely tortoise and hare. Like, and, I, and I know tortoise and hare is almost cliched because everyone knows about it. But you know the thing about cliches? They're cliches because they're true. That, that's how things become cliched, right? They're not cliched because they're wrong. They're cliched because they're true. Because they're true. And then the thing is that the phenomenal thing is that once you invest for like say 10 years, a yeah. decade, yeah. the next decade... It's fantastic. Yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> the first decade is actually probably the hardest that's right, one. That's right, right. That's right. The next decade is fantastic, and the decade after that <laughs> is like just brilliantly awesome. Yeah. So I yeah, think that yeah. that's just the, yeah the patience uh, thing is is brilliant, and time is really brilliant. Yeah, the, you know, time in the market yeah. um, is is really important. Can so I read you the first little bit of Andrew's Andrew's just to give Andrew some credit here because he was on the other day. Please, yes. He says you won't find tips on what the next hot stock will be in the classics of literature, but that isn't to say you won't find insight. Take Leo Tolstoy's epic, War and Peace. In the middle of this tome, you'll find the line, quote, the two most powerful warriors are patience and time, end quote. Is it such a great line, but rather critique or congratulate Tolstoy for his prose, I want to touch on this from an investing sense. He goes on to say, why are they so powerful? Simple. In the long run, share prices tend to go up, but in the short term, share prices can do almost anything without any fundamental rationale. The latter we call volatility, when in fact we probably should just retitle it for what it often is. And that's noise. I think that's a really good way to start. So if you're a Share Advisor member, have a read of that if you haven't already. If you're not, hey, join Share Advisor and, uh, and get that plus all of our great advice. Uh, but yeah, mate, you, you're dead right. That is, that is super, super important, right? Let's take that though to to the question because, uh, Jesse, I get all that, but <laughs> the yeah. next few months could be rocky, right? Yeah. So here's the thing for Jason. So number one, I think in our minds, we have a huge tendency to equate stock market to the economy. Mm-hmm. Right? The stock market is not really the economy. The economy is not really the stock market. The yeah. economy could be in tatters and the stock market could still go up. Yeah, right, exactly. Right? But number one reason that could happen mm-hmm. is the stock, the economy is in tatters. Economy is in tatters is a backward reflection because mm-hmm. remember GDP numbers and everything we talk about is a backward reflection. So Friday, what didn't has, we? Yep. What yep. has happened? Stock market is all about the future. Mm-hmm. Right. If the future is looking bright relative to what it is now and the share prices are cheap relative to what it can be in the future, market will tend to go up, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's that's number one. Number two is there could be sectors in the market that are gonna suffer. There could be sectors in the market that are mm-hmm. gonna be do, doing well. So yep. I, I think those two things we get too tied up in, you know, what's happening in the economy, oh the unemployment, oh right, this, right, oh right. that. I, I think you need to think 
you know, abstract, think long term. The market is really thinking forward. The market is almost mm-hmm. discounted. Mm-hmm. Anything that's happening this year, next six months, it's probably looking out to 2021, yep. right? And beyond, really. Because the market knows, well, yeah. it's, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> the like, the Kobe's a basket case right now. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah, because if that was the case, if market was not doing that, the Qantas share price, for example, and I'm using Qantas as an example, I love yeah, Qantas, yeah. Yeah. would be zero. Yeah, that's exactly. That's it right. should be zero. Yes. Quantum yeah. share price should be zero because, yeah. or whatever, it's debt minus the assets they've yeah, got. Yeah, yeah. Relatively close to yeah, zero, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But no, it's right. not because right. the market is saying, well, there is going to be a time in future when people are going to be flying yep. and when they're going to be doing that, Quantum is going to be making some money and yep. may make more money because there's no real credible competition left at this point. And in fact, if you actually extrapolate this, I haven't kind of connected these two dots before, at least not, not logically or a lot time consciously, but. Tesla would have been worth exactly zero or less than zero right until it made its first dollar of profit. Amazon would still probably be worth almost exactly zero. Um, zero would be worth zero. Zero with an X would be worth zero with a Z um, until they make money, right? These, these businesses clearly are not worth zero because there is future potential in them, right? That 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 in and of itself should be exactly the the reason why you look through some of this stuff. Even if, even if the kind of the, the economy will bounce back stuff doesn't grab you, to your point about thinking about the future, any company that was once loss making was clearly not worth exactly zero until it made a profit. Yeah. It would have been madness to use that approach. So that's a, I think it's a really nice way to kind of just back that your point about Qantas. Yeah, and, and then of course you have to realize and factor in things like you know, Qantas could go bankrupt. So you factor that's a probability, right? So I mean, there's mm-hmm. a whole range of outcomes that's going to happen, but I think that's important to keep in mind that you know things are going to be better in the future on average. Mm. And if you know again, if you're optimistic about it, then you know you can invest. So I think that's the framework to use. To invest, and the other other thing is the march of progress keeps happening, mm. right? So the market march of progress will happen through the darkness of times. Mm. You know, we will be better off because COVID. You know, not that COVID was a good thing, but we'll be better off in some way or shape or form because COVID has happened. Yeah, right. Maybe we will be better prepared for the next pandemic because mm. COVID has happened. That improves the odds of the future being better. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, maybe we'll have some developments. You know, maybe we'll change our processes of vaccinations. Maybe we'll come up with better better techniques, better cures. Yeah. I mean, some of the potential vaccines would actually be theory proving. So this Moderna stuff, I was listening to a podcast, yeah. I know you talked about this before, but literally it would be the very, if it's successful, the very first time this particular technology has actually been proven to work, which if it does, opens yeah. up opens up massive numbers of gates and a whole lot of different future opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. So so I think that that those are the promises. I think, the, you know, the, the you know, and that's why I'm a huge fan of technology mm-hmm. is that a lot of these things are enabled by technology, right? The progress yeah. is is basically technology taking us forward, right? And, and I think that's the promise and that's one of the promise we invest in and that has lots whole heaps of flow on effects on, yeah, yeah. on technology or non-technology. You know, technology enables other things as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the framework to think about. Yeah. At the same time, I think we can, and I'll make this very quick, we can identify stuff that is definitely going to hurt or not going to be growing at the same time. Again, if the price mm-hmm. is not right. So, you know, if you think, for example, that credit flow is going to be a problem for the next few years because, you know, we have too much credit in the market mm-hmm. or there's too mm-hmm. much debt in the market, then you can identify certain types of companies. For example, maybe the banks mm-hmm. are not good investments, right? I mean, the banks have pulled back, but maybe they're not going to do anything for the next five years. If mm-hmm. you have that view, you shouldn't be owning those bank shares, for example, right? Um, Westpac shares have not done anything for the last decade, mm. right? So I think that is the sort of the framework we can use our current framework and we should make judgments about the stocks we currently own or can own mm-hmm. uh, based with on that framework. And of course, you're going to be sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but you know, on average, if you're more right than wrong and when you're right, you are more right 
then you can yeah, be wrong. Exactly. I think, you know, and by that, what I mean is that, you yeah. know, if your upside yeah. is a lot more than your downside, then, you know, on, on, on average, you're going to be doing well. So that's the framework sort of I would take. Nice, I like that, mate. I have a couple of things. Look, I completely agree with everything you've just said, and I'll, we'll keep it short as well. But um, the, it was interesting to me that – so every, when you've been doing this game for a little bit of time and, and dealing with people for a long time, um, the, the conversations become – I won't say repetitive, but the, the themes repeat, and it's why it's useful to have done this for a while. So, Jason, I get your point. The thing is that after the GFC, everyone was telling us we're going to be a double-dip recession, which didn't happen. And everyone said the QE was going to stop and that was going to destroy the economy. Well, so firstly, QE was going to create hyperinflation. That didn't happen. The QE was going to stop and destroy the economy and that didn't happen. Uh, and I don't say that to, to, to make fun of those people who thought it. The, the, the part, some of the challenge I think sometimes is it's a bit of forest and trees problem. And Doc kind of alluded to that, that, you know, are these things possibly risks? Yes. But we have had a dozen risks every single year that could possibly be the one that brought the economy down. And the one that no one thought about was COVID, right? Because in December last year, it didn't exist, or at least not, not in any any public consciousness. And yet two months later, the economy you know nosedived in the fastest bear market in history. Um, you could have tried to avoid every other possible risk and not seen this one and so not prepared for it. So I think that's true. The only thing people say, and I've, I've bagged Steve Keen. I actually don't mind Steve Keen. He's, I don't agree with him, but I, I don't dislike him as a thinker. I think he's worth think, listening to, at least for a different perspective. But his, um, he had that famous house price bet where he had to walk to the top of Mount Kosciuszko because he lost a bet that house price is falling. And his response was, well, I would have been right if government hadn't done X, Y, and Z, which is exactly right. The problem is that government's always going to do X, Y, and Z. So the 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 you know the when job keeper stops, when job seeker stops, when banks stop deferring mortgages stuff. That's absolutely true. If that happens in an un, un uh, managed and a, and, a, and a, you know badly managed, badly kind of um, uh, thought through and implemented process, that assumes governments are silly enough to remove job keeper, job seeker, and let the economy crash. That assumes banks are going to you know, remove mortgage deferrals and they have this massive house price crash on their hands. It's in nobody's interest to do that. It's everyone's interest to do the reverse. So I think to your point, if, yeah, and it's possible. Of course it's possible, right? Governments could do stupid things. They certainly have done in the past. Um, so yeah, is it possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the reality though, that the likelihood of that, I think is pretty low. I think governments have learnt, regulators have learnt um, what to do and, and, and try and get right. So I, I think... For what it's worth, I think you're right. If, if those circumstances were to come to pass, that would be a big deal. I don't think governments are silly enough. And I think what will happen is they'll they'll, t- they'll taper these things as the economy recovers its own steam. Uh, it's like saying, well, you know, what, what's going to happen when the patient is taken off pethidine tomorrow? So we're not going to do that tomorrow. We're going to wait until they're, they're better. You know, what happens when the IV drugs go away? Well, we won't take the IV drugs away until they're actually up and walking around. Um, and so I think, to, to be honest, that's how I'd think about it. So I'm not avoiding anything in particular. Um, I think the long term is still far more useful than the short term, even though you mentioned that and then used the but word. Um, Jason, I, I understand it. Uh, if you don't like banks for the right reasons, then don't, don't invest them anyway. The chance that there's a three or six month story on some of those that, that, that somehow you can avoid or, or take advantage of, I think is just unlikely, quite honestly. So I probably wouldn't bother trying um, because the chances that you're right about the, the, the timing, right about the implications, right about the actions, right about the companies that are, that are hit by it, right about the way the shareholders might respond to those potential risks. Again, if we'd said, look, you know, tra- travel's going to, I mean, corporate travel, I own shares. Yesterday closed at 16 bucks, right? That's not miles away from their lows before the pandemic. If you told me that travel's going to stop altogether for, you know, for almost altogether for six months, and yet the shares would have fallen, I don't know, 15, 20%, maybe max from... But by now, from where they were in February, I was like, no, there's no chance of that. So, you know, if I try to avoid that loss, 
Um, now, it's still down, right? But but the size of it, I would give you long odds against $16 share price at, at the beginning of September. Let's move on. But good question, Jason. Thank you for the question, Matt. It's the right question to ask. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Doc, I have a question from Jonathan who says, uh, I'm just listening to you reading out my letter. Now, Jonathan was the was the gentleman who emailed us and said, you guys are idiots uh, for not, uh, no, he didn't say that, for uh, for not, in, not including inflation in your numbers. Um, his, his English teacher partner uh, said it was, was it disingenuous? Was that the word? I think he said he wouldn't have used the word, but his partner suggested it. Uh, so that was, that was funny. He said, I had a good old laugh. Thank you. He said, beautifully read and explained as usual. Now he says, top, changing topics, interesting about Salesforce and Benioff and startups. He says, thank you for being so gracious. Have you bought Tesla yet? Thank you, Jonathan. Enough of that rubbish. He said, though, honestly, I'm wondering whether it's not time to sell at least some to hedge my bets. How on earth could it be worth so much more than the other car makers? He said, I have a Model 3 and I love it. So, Doc, I'm always loath to ask you about Tesla because, um, frankly, you know, uh, you'll just tell me how much money I've lost again. But I will because Jonathan's a nice bloke because he asked the question because I feel like I owe it to him to ask you the question in 38 seconds. I'm assuming you still own Tesla. I'm assuming you haven't sold any Tesla. I'm assuming you still think Tesla is at least worth holding, if not buying today. So first question, if you were a non-holder, would you buy? If you're a holder, would you buy more? Second question, how on earth could it be worth so much more than the other car makers? Oh, easy question. Uh, c- congratulations, uh, Jonathan, for owning a Model 3. Oh, here we go. Um, here we go. Again, if you drive a Model <laughs> 3, you know uh, that the other cars are basically like a horse. Um, <laughs> so a horse or a dinosaur is how, I describe the ICE cars as dinosaurs. Um, you know, I love my Model 3, and Model 3 is awesome. Um, so, he, okay, so the answer, I'll answer your easy questions. If you have a growth portfolio, I have no qualms in saying that, you know, it is a good idea to own some Tesla. Um, how much depends on individuals. And I have not sold any Tesla. Is about 26% of our portfolio. Um, and I have not sold any, right? Um, I did think about trimming some, but I have not <laughs> trimmed either. Um, I had a chat about this with my wife this morning, and my wife said... <laughs> You should not, I think you're stressed, you should not be worrying about your Tesla shares. And what you should think about is, well, let it just ride. And even if it cuts in half, it's still going to be a way lot more than how much you'd invested. <laughs> I know that logic kind of maybe doesn't work because it's, you know, it's not, there's no such thing as house money. But anyways, that, that's how I think about Tesla or how my wife thinks about it. Once my wife has given me the license to think like that, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay to think about we'll it like that. Told, otherwise, uh, otherwise, you know. So... Yeah, so yes, I would buy some if I didn't own any. Um, I would not add at 25, 30% allocations, but uh, I I think like an. Was a 3% position for you? Would you be buying more with the current price? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. There you go. Um, you know, I, when I made my position large, I, I roughly took it to about 7 or 8% to just give you an idea of what All I did. Right. Um, I largely stop at around seven, eight percent for any position, and then I let organic growth do its own thing. Okay. Um, so last year I was buying. I don't know. I've talked about it many times. I was buying, you know, and I bought many times. I first bought shares in around 2013, um, and then I bought a lot more in 2018, and then some in 2019. Mm. Um, right now, how can the last question? How can Tesla be larger than? So number no, no, the story of some 
so here's yeah. The story sometime back was Tesla is going to be killed by the other car companies. Mm. Now the question is, are the other car companies going to survive? <laughs> so if that is the question, you can easily answer why right. Tesla is much larger than right. all the other uh, car companies. So number two is Tesla is not just a car company. I think that would be a mistake to think of it as a car company. It is a EV powertrain maker. It's a battery company. It's an energy company. It is an autonomous vehicle company. Yeah. Um, and you also don't know what else Musk is cooking up. For all I know, he could be building the next plane, which is an electric plane. He could be building the electric helicopter. He could be building whatever else. So there's a huge optionality. Um, also, remember, a lot of these automakers that you're talking about, they don't, none of these, like a Ford, for example, does not build semi-trucks. Tesla has a semi in the pipeline. So it's, it's also a commercial vehicle producer. Right. Right. So I, I, I think that's, there's that. Um, a lot of people, as I have said, are tripped by the fact that the Tesla share price has gone up a lot recently. Mm. What I think people do not realize is that Tesla share prices didn't do anything for the last five years yeah, before right. it actually took over, took off. So I think there's a recency bias in people's assumptions there. Um, so you know, I like I like the fact that it's a it's a it's a it's a particular company that raises different types of views. It's a mm. company that makes a lot of people uh, uncomfortable. I really like that. I actually like companies that make people uncomfortable, um, which means there's no yet, there's there's no consensus view. The Wall Street <laughs> consensus on the company is- You're a growth ho- contrarian, I like it. The Wall Street consensus is hold. Yep. That to me, uh, but you know, if I look at sort of, you know, the various mm. traits you look for a business, then it takes a lot of different things. So I don't know. I'll, I, I think it's a, fantastic company to own uh, it's going to compound mm. uh, at an incredible rate for a long time can it go wrong yes everything can go wrong so <laughs> that's that there you go Jonathan that was a, a longish 38 seconds mate but I think you just put in just under 37 and a half or so alright um, let's keep moving mate we're making good time actually question from Tim g'day team love the pod and a question for it what's your thoughts on Flexi Group the only BNPL stock actually making a profit but by and large, has had no rally. Cheers, Tim. I mean, I'm going to ask you about this, but I'm going to just. Uh, so I, I'm fascinated by. I'm, I'm going to. Well, I'm going to probably put my cards on the table here and say there's sentiment to some degree involved in this one, right? Um, because buy now, pay later, off to the races. Flex Group doing nothing. In retail, similar thing. If you look at the, the PE difference between say Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi, right? Again, not not companies you necessarily buy, but JB Hi-Fi is something like. The PE is like 34, no, it's more, 60, 70% higher than Harvey Norman's PE. And both have had really strong results. Kogan's off to the race, of course, only pure retail. Nick Scarley, a bit of both. I am, it, it's just tempting to think, to see, maybe maybe incorrectly, maybe erroneously, to see sentiment and popularity and coolness and whatever in some of these things. Now, maybe maybe people are just seeing the future in different ways and maybe, you know, Flexi Group is dead and after pay is the winner. But when you got split it and open pay and sizzle and I can't remember all the other ones that are our zip, the other one, whatever else is out there. Um, one of them's there. One of them's been around forever. It invented by now pay letter quite literally, although it wasn't called that at the time with, with the kind of 50 months interest free with Harvey Norman. Um, I, I, I think Tim's asking a fair question. Um, you know, like I don't, I think you're probably right. And, um, I don't have a view actually in flexi. It's okay. been on my radar to look at carefully. Um, <laughs> But you know, it's that it's that old school business that basically wants to become 
the mm. new school business and i somehow feel a little uncomfortable but you are uh, more familiar with the business I'll, so what's your view i i Tim, the part of, part of the question right is, is actually how much of the current rally is actually real, right? Because, uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's not, by the way, but if, if Afterpay becomes a $20 stock at some point in the next six months, maybe we just avoided the bubble in Flexi Group. That, that, that's entirely possible, right? So it depends on what you want to anchor to. Afterpay is expensive relative to Flexi. Flexi is cheap relative to Afterpay. Uh, Flexi is fairly priced. Afterpay is expensive. Um, there's a million different options and, and, and choices there, right? I think what Flexi has yet to do, and despite my, my initial comments, um, Flexi's yet to show growth in that business in, in a really meaningful way. And I think the Flexi strategy has thus far been to use the retailers, do the deal with the retailer specifically, rather than target the customer directly. And that's that's kind of an important difference, right? Now, Afterpay, of course, does a deal with the retailers as well. But Afterpay creates consumer demand and then says to the retailer, hey, you better have this because your consumers want it. Um, Flexi's never done that in its past. Now, it's because it's a new Hum product, H-U-A-M. Apparently, the company's going to rebrand itself, call itself Hum, because that's what you do these days. Um, but the, the, the reality was that, you know, if you were to Harvey Norman, you might take the 50-month interest-free deal. It might be powered by Flexi Group. That's all fine. But Flexi doesn't really get a brand out of that in any meaningful way. They've never really been able to kind of capture a consumer attention in the same way that Afterpay has by saying, hey, you want the Afterpay app on your phone, and then you find a retailer that accepts it. It's a really nice symbiosis, right? Um, ironically, Doc, you were talking about kind of enterprise software. This is almost the reverse from a retail perspective where Hum was the enterprise kind of, you know, solution. But in this market, you actually need to have both the retailer and the consumer on board demanding your product um, to really get growth. So Hum is accepted in many, many, many fewer places. There's no real obvious growth in that from a consumer angle. There's not this groundswell of support for the Hum app um, or, or, you know, do you take Hum rather than do you take Afterpay? I think that's that's why they're different. And I think the growth trajectory, the range of possibilities for Hum is much smaller in both up and downside currently than for Afterpay. Now, people are believing the Afterpay story. It may well come true. This could be a $500 stock, could be a $20 stock, but that, that is kind of the range of outcomes, right? For, for Flexi, at least for now, until they can create something more than that, they are still a you know, a credit provider to a retailer. And that's that's fine. It's a good business. I think they're probably too cheap, by the way. I think they've been ignored by the market. Um, so I wouldn't be just... Now, it's not a buy for me, so I want to be really careful there. But it is it is, it is objectively cheap if it can restore itself and grow meaningfully or even moderately. It's probably cheap. Now, the if is a big if, um, but this is, not a, this is not a high growth investment in any sense, unless they can somehow strike out. And if they can, we'll get plenty of warning of that one. So... Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't buy Flexi right now. They've, they've disappointed operationally for too long. The hum thing is worth watching. And if they can get some traction, then I definitely would be adding it back to the watch list. But right now, I don't buy, I don't own any of the BNPL players, by the way. So I'm, I'm either impartial or maybe I'm just bitter because I missed out. I'm not sure which. Uh, but, you know, Flexi is potentially the value play in the area, but it has to demonstrate some growth. Do you have any other thoughts? Nope. Tim ends with hashtag get Scott on something he is not. I'm not going to get on TikTok, Tim. No chance. I do have, I do have, uh, uh, what's that? WhatsApp, but I, have, I don't use that if I have to. I'm, I'm happy with the socials I've got. You can try TikTok. TikTok, yeah. Remember? Do you remember the remember the little boy band Crisscross back in the? No. For those who, those who remember, Crisscross will make you jump. Was the kind of Crisscross will make you jump, jump. Anyway, that's why when I hear TikTok, I think Crisscross, and then I sing jump in my head and. That's pretty much it. Oh, you'll then be successful. I could do a takeoff of the film clip. Exactly. That'd be fun. I'm not going to do it. Question from Craig. Hi, Scott. Big fan of the podcast. And you two wise media celebrities. Media celebrities. 
I'm not a celebrity. It's a massive mischaracterization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are a lot of things. We are not media celebrities. Mm-hmm. All right. I recently joined Doc's EO service and it's created a bit of a dilemma. Oh, dear, Doc. What have you done to poor Dilemma? <sighs> Actually, it's a good dilemma. Okay. Because he goes on to say, so many great ideas, but I don't have enough money to invest in them all. He said, a great tangent for the podcast, but it's actually not my question. <laughs> Which I love. I love he that. set me up beautifully for that. Yeah. All right. I've recently turned my attention to a really smoking hot tech IPO in the US. Mm-hmm. Something to do with frozen raindrops made in the cloud. Oh, yeah. Have you heard about this one? Mm-hmm. I thought he might have been pulling our chain. Um, it has amazing growth rates and all the experts are expecting it to be priced at an equally amazingly high price at <laughs> listing. Mm-hmm. And it may well double on its first day. Even all this hype, I am still interested in digging my toe in, dipping my toe in, sorry, and buying a small stake. Question is, any tips for buying shares in hot tech IPOs? Mm-hmm. Full on Craig. Frozen raindrops in clouds. This is, this is, so this is the- this I, is James Bond. This I, I'm is, sure this, I saw this on James Bond movies. So Craig, I'm actually impressed with Craig's writing, okay. uh, his writing skills. Um, this, so this frozen raindrop thing, this is the most anticipated tech IPO of this year or for some time it's a company called snowflake i'm already i'm already i'm already short this thing this okay if you look at the if frozen if, raindrops come on this is this is james bond stuff yeah but he, he said the company is called snowflake but uh <laughs> no mr a, bond i expect a, you to have a, frozen it's raindrops. a data it's a data warehousing company um think of just managing data basically as, as in a warehouse sort of format this company where the frozen raindrops come in just in the name just just Good name. So the whole thing's a complete ruse. There is no frozen raindrops. Yeah, no frozen raindrops. <sighs> Craig, but you sold me beautifully there. Go on. If Zoom's numbers make you blush, <laughs> this is, I don't know, making you double blush. It has <laughs> unbelievable numbers. Um, yeah, so he's right. Snowflake. It's going to probably IPO and then double on the same first day. Wow. Um, because of all the IPO process is entirely rigged. That's, <laughs> a, that's an, uh, another, an, another thing. Yes, we'll talk about that another day. Ah, um, what to do? I know uh, Kevin Gandia, who works with uh, um, with with me on some of the services, and our colleague. Um, he has looked at this and he said, "Oh, this is like okay, great." You know, there are lots of other people who have looked at it and saying, "Okay, this is fantastic." Um, lots of people in the know are. This is what people are. So he's he's mm. absolutely right. He's onto mm. the right thing. It's probably going to be priced like crazy. So the anticipated IPO. Market capitalization twenty five billion. Mm. It's probably going to be fifty billion by the end of the day. That's a lot. Yeah. Are you interested in fifty billion? I don't know. Uh, this is a okay. business that I think has long legs. Okay. So I might be interested in having a startup stake <laughs> at some price. <laughs> I'll just buy a little bit, maybe. So what can you do? You, you can you can use your broker and you'd probably have shares on the first day and you mm. can buy it. The shares are probably going to be, as I said, they're going to be jumping a lot. Uh, I don't know of any good mechanism of actually getting into the IPO. You, mm. you probably can't, only preferred candidates. Yeah, that's the problem, right? There's two, the IPO results have two, there's two different sets of IPO results. There is the people who own them before the IPO who make a fortune on day one. And there's people who buy them on day one, hope to make money after that. And they're often very different outcomes. Uh, in either direction, by the way, sometimes... Um, you know, shares go up a lot and, you know, Facebook looked expensive for quite a while and dropped like a stone and then has gone through the roof after that. And so there's there's ways of playing it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be boring, Doc, and just say that ignore the hype. And if you think the closing price or the current price when it lists 
is attractive relative to its future, you buy the shares and just you know let, let it do its thing. But yeah. there's no there's no real trick or tip. There's nothing unless you're an insider, unless you happen to know somebody or have worked for the company or have already got pre-IPO shares. The gains on day one are absolutely for the insiders. They are not for us. Um, I'd like to think they were for us. I'd like to have them. We're not going to have them. So when people say the IPO was successful, they really mean the insiders made a fortune. <laughs> and people buy on day one, bought the hype, which might... Google's done very well from the IPO, for example. Um, you know, even that at the time was supposed to be stupidly priced, but if yeah. I remember the, the news at the time. So some do really well. Uber is still down, I think, on the IPO price. Yeah, lots, so lots of IPOs careful. are down. Be yeah. careful. And it's not really even for the insiders. It's, it's for mm. those insiders who have not sold the shares, right? Yes, A lot yes. of insiders will be selling the That's shares I mean. to yep. the brokers. Yep. The brokers will then allocate it to... Yeah, that's right. To their favorite clients, yeah, 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 yeah. and and those favorite clients have actually are going to be up hundred percent on day one. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's that. It's a bit. It's crazy. Uh, Craig, love love to make those gains, mate. You're probably best just just. I would say, could you just generally don't buy into the hype in either way? Uh, if it's a great company, you think it's going to be worthwhile, then fine. Work out now how much money you'd pay for the shares based on the long term. And if your view is, I'm going to buy because I think they're going to go, keep going up. I'd, uh, I just I just ask you to have a think about why that is, and if you're betting on the the um, the rest of the market, remember the Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. I think all three IPOs are still down. Doc, it's you know some are up, some are down. Uh, don't don't assume just because an IPO and it's hot, it'll go up forever. Yeah, Airbnb hasn't IPO'd yet. Oh, there you go. What am I thinking of? That they're they're thinking of IPOing. Oh, yeah, there was the other company. Uh, Lyft, 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 and Uber, Lyft and Uber are. What's the IPO? Doesn't matter. Let's move on. Yeah. Question from Rohit. Rod says, hello, Captain and Doc. Hope you guys are doing well. We are. Thank you very much. I never miss single podcast and I love the Sunday mailbag edition. Good man. I've got a quick question. As the S&P 500 is getting back to where it was before the pandemic this quickly, do you guys think everything is slowly starting to get back to normal? Or is this because of the Federal Reserve? Is the stock market heading towards another bubble? Hope you guys answer my question. Rohit, are we heading towards a bubble, Doc? Is, is this getting... A bit too carried away. In fact, we're not just heading back towards the pre-pandemic highs. The S&P 500 smashed through them some time ago. 10, 12% higher, I think, something like that. Something like that, I think. So the answer to the bubble question is we always know what is a bubble after the fact, after the bubble <laughs> exactly. pops. I'll tell you next year. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> a, a, when the bubble pops, Rohit, I will tell you that this was a bubble or not. Till then, I can't answer that question, unfortunately. Are you worried about valuations of the market? Um, no. Well, yeah. Well, so, so the two, two answers to that. Number one is I don't really worry about what the market is priced at. Okay. The market actually looks reasonably fairly priced. S&P, I think, is on a forward PE of 22. Mm. Uh, relatively speaking, that is high mm-hmm. but it is not that high if you think about A, the change in the market and B, the change in interest rates. Yeah. Um, it seems about fair to me. It, it's it's not, we're not in 1999 or 2000 mm. type of multiples. Right? That's absolutely uh, true. <laughs> so so that, that, that's that. And Thank the goodness. interest rate yeah. is zero. Yep. It's going to be zero for a while. So that's yep. that. Um yeah, but it does seem odd. Mm. But the market is forward-looking. Look for specific companies, not the market. But I, I don't mm. think the market is of, like you know extremely priced. It, it's I think reasonably fairly priced. Mm. I'm a little less sanguine than you are, Doc. Uh, two reasons: one is I don't really care what the market does either. I don't own any. I actually own a tech ETF, but I don't own a, a general market ETF in the US. Not an S and P five hundred one. Um, it's it's all it's all about the long term, right? So we, it's gonna it's gonna crash at least another half dozen times in my investing life, and probably even more. Um, the market tends to fall ten percent once every eighteen months or so. So realistically, we're always you know we're, we're never that far from the next one, at least um, on an average basis. 
but it goes up more than it goes down. And, and again, uh, I've said before, and I'll say again, uh, one of our former colleagues, Morgan Housel, said that more money is lost trying to avoid the next crash than in the crash itself um, because you miss the opportunity. If the market goes up 20 and then down 10, well, guess what? You're better to ride the wave than try and get out too early and avoid the crash. That, yes, was painful, uh, but you made more money by staying invested than not. And I think that generally tends to be my, my view. Um, I do worry a little bit about people paying up, you know, if if I worry about the investor who's buying now because shares are going up, who might sell when there's a crash because they realize they've lost money and so they buy high and sell low, that'd be a terrible, terrible thing to do. That's that they're the investors I'm most concerned about, mate, is the that that group of people. Um is it a bubble? I don't think it's a bubble. I think it's hard to is it overvalued? Maybe in hindsight we might see that. It it's very, very, very hard to call it a bubble on any meaningful basis, even though as Doc says you can't know until after the fact. Um P is up a bit higher than they used to be, but rates are up, and, and frankly, growth rates on the biggest companies in the market are higher than they've been for a long time. I think, I know, Doc. If I if I kind of market cap weighted the companies that we have, the biggest companies that we have in our market now, and compare those to the nineteen nineties, I just pick a number, not ninety nine necessarily, a probably bad example because that was the big the big bubble and crash there. But if I took the biggest companies of today and the biggest companies of nineteen ninety three or two thousand and five, I I would I would speculate. The market, the average market growth rate is probably a good three or four or five points higher than it was back then. And it was average. I'm not talking about just those top companies. But think about Amazons and Apples and Netflixes and Facebooks and Googles. I mean, the growth rates of those guys aren't the growth rates of GM and GE and, you know, some, some of the Exxon Mobiles of the past. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, so we should be, pay- sorry, just quickly, we should be paying more for, for higher growth, right? So that, that, would, that would support a higher P in the market. Yeah, so so I think yeah, I mean the the PE is high, uh, in a forward basis. I think these are good to look at, you know, forward and you can look at forward consensus numbers and so on. So it's it's getting close to where it was maybe during the nineteen ninety nines, two thousands, and mm. stuff like that. But again, I'm not sure. Again, these are things that we wouldn't know until we know. So I don't have a view. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I would say this is significantly different from the age of the GE. So the mm. companies like GE really maximized earnings. Right. Um, companies like uh, oh, yeah, right, okay. Yeah, and Amazon do not maximize earnings. Mm, mm. Right. So that you, so I think you get a distortion because of the way the you know the PE is measured. Right. So mm. I mean, if you think about operating cash flow. Or you just think about free cash flow. I think yeah. on on those metrics, you'd see that we are in a different sort of world than I guess at that time. Mm. So, yeah, that's usually yeah. I like that. I like that. It's um, it's yeah, it's a good point. The and not we say maximizing profits. What what you're really saying is companies are happily invest reinvesting in growth in ways that because they have that growth potential. Amazon, Google, Apple could all be making more money today should they choose to. It would jeopardize their future growth, but they could do it and deliver higher EPS and therefore lower PEs, right? But they're, they're choosing instead to reinvest some of that money for future growth, which is much better for shareholders, but doesn't show up in either current forward or trailing PEs. Yeah, that's correct. Question from Dash. Hey, Scott, I'm 45 and a very new investor. I decided to buy the Vanguard Global ETF in early April. I felt like the right time given the drop in prices. I have since signed on to Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities, have read and listened to your podcast as much as I can to learn, and I've started to build towards a portfolio of 25 stocks. That's a pretty smashing start, mate, all things considered, don't you reckon? That is very good. I currently hold 12, all in line with yours and the doc's recommended approach. I've also tried to bring my kids along this journey. How good is this? They are 21, 19, and 13. That is brilliant. I did not think they were overly interested until my 13-year-old yesterday asked to help her invest in an ETF to get started. Love it. 
How good is that? That's, that's pretty That's pretty awesome. That's very good. I'm, I'm pretty stoked, Dash. That's awesome, dude. All right. I have a couple of questions, please. One, where or how can I get help? St- uh, sorry, can I help get started? Is Comsec Pocket a good option? Probably yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's a pretty simple yes. Um, small amounts of money, ETFs only. Um, a very, a very pared down version of a brokerage account, but a really, really good way with small amounts of money or very early transactions, particularly for, for kids. Absolutely great way to get started. All right. Number two, do I need to worry about correlation in building out my portfolio? And should I just follow your recommendations? And he says, what is it? What is correlation? Um, now, we talk about correlation. We're talking about really understanding the risks that the companies in your portfolios face and making sure that they aren't too exposed together to single risks and they have enough diversification in your portfolio. Let me explain. The easiest one is people say, I'm diversified. I've got, I've got four banks. <laughs> Guess what? That's not diversification. Uh, four banks uh, are all exposed to the mortgage market, the Australian economy. Um, where, the, where, you know, where one of them goes, they all will go. That is super, super correlated, even though you're, in theory, diversified in air quotes across four companies. You're also not diversified if you own four banks, a mortgage broker, and a home builder <laughs> because the same thing applies. So again, different industries in theory. Um, even if you had you know, banks, mortgage broker, a home builder, and a consumer discretionary stock. Again, still super exposed to a single economy, a single set of metrics, i.e. Australian economic growth and spending. Um, So correlation really, we're looking, don't worry about correlation from a statistical perspective, I'll spit that out. Um, Think about the, how how broad your portfolio is and what risks your portfolio are exposed to. And again, I would separate volatility from risk here, right? Like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, Talk about you, Doc, for a second. You got, you got a handful of, you know, you got a portfolio full of tech stocks. Now, if tech stocks are on the nose on the market for some reason, Doc's portfolio might fall twenty five percent in a, in a given period of time. Is that risk? Not really. If he's right in the long term, if it's just pure volatility, i.e., the market for short term hates tech, that doesn't really matter, right? Because if he's right over the long term, volatility is just fluctuation in prices. Risk and where correlation matters is the things that could either permanently undermine your investment case or see you lose money permanently. So if all the banks are overvalued and are never worth the current price, then your portfolio is probably structurally damaged by that. You can't bounce back because it's not pure volatility. It's you're exposed to a sector and bought shares at a price that was simply too high and you may never get market burning returns from that portfolio. That is risk as opposed to just pure volatility. Doc, your thoughts on correlation and risk? Yeah, I think you've answered everything that I was going to... I have nothing really to add. Sorry, man. Yeah. My apologies. Um, uh, he says, should I just follow your recommendations? This is a more difficult one, mate. I, I have a yes and a no on this one. So my yes is that Share Advisor, talking about our, my service, is specifically structured and managed, measured, to beat the market over the long term as if you bought each one of our recommendations in the same proportions every single month the way we recommend them. That's my, my job is to beat the market. So if you're looking for a market beating return, now if I do my job, and I may not, past performance is no guarantee as we all know, but if, if I do my job, then just simply buy one of everything will give you the return I get. And if I beat the market, then you've beaten the market. Uh, on the same, by the same token, you may not be comfortable with that as an approach. So what's right for individuals isn't right for, for everybody. But, you know, uh, is, is it a diversified investment approach only? It's a pretty diversified share advisor. Um, extreme opportunity is probably slightly less so because of the, the style that Doc takes. But again, if he beats the market, well, do you need more diversification than that? That's an open question. I think that's where we start to... Diversification as a concept is great, but over-diversifying or diversifying just for the sake of it, I don't want you to buy two miners and two airlines and two, I don't know, whatever else is Doc, um, Specky Biotechs, just so you can say you've got some of each. That'd be a crazy way to diversify. So be sensibly diversified without necessarily... You know, eventually, if you diversify too far, you just get the market return. You might as well buy an ETF. 
Your thoughts, Doc? I, I think I agree with all of that. All right. I'm going to let you guys answer the next one then so I don't steal you with thunder. Are you able to share your process for not including a stock in your scorecard? I like this one. E.g., why isn't CSL or A2 Milk included? So about share advisor here. Thank you for the services you offer. I wish I had started when I was 13. Apologies for the long note and full on. Um, Dash, you never have to apologize for a long note, mate. If you've got started, if we've helped, if you've got your kids on board, mate, I will read those all day. And our listeners, I'm very sure, will be happy to hear them. Because if you're not getting a, a warming a glow from knowing that three kids, uh, as well as Dash, is, is, uh, are getting benefit from listening to this and, and helping themselves on an investing journey, then I don't know what I can do for you. So um, I'm sure, mate, our listeners are more than happy to hear the story. And thank you for the long note. Um, <sighs> I want to ask you this question, Doc, because he's talked about share advisor, but he's also signed on to EO, even though he's talking about stocks that uh, maybe are more share advisory. Why wouldn't you? What's your process for not including a stock on the EO scorecard? Well, if it doesn't meet my criteria in many ways, right? I mean, okay. if it's if it's uh, if it's not going to give me that risk reward profile that I'm looking for. So, I mean, so, something like CSL, for example, is too big to deliver mm. potential for a five X. Right. So. If it doesn't have that potential, then it becomes more of a, you know, it's like a more steady growth type of company. So it, it's right. just outside the universe. We should not say it can't do well. I wouldn't say it can't beat the market. Just that your particular preference for trying to find the best stocks you can just excludes that by, not not, not actively, just passively, right? You just doesn't ever kind of meet your filters. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit outside sort of the market cap zone that I'm, I mm. would be looking for. I, I mean, each service has its own zone. It's not that they're defined, but, you know, that, that will just be outside that. Mm. So that's one reason for exclusion. The other reason for exclusion is like, you know, you're looking for various things in the business. You might be looking for a certain growth rate. You want them to be in a certain industry. You want them to have a certain amount of, you know, addressable market. Yeah. You want them to have certain margin profile. You want a certain type of management. You want a certain type of execution. You want a certain type of, you know, um, go-to-market strategy. All of those, you know, and you, no company is going to take all of those boxes, but, you know, if something doesn't right, take right. any of those boxes, that's yeah. probably out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the speculative stuff is out. A lot of the stuff that is, you know, penny stocks that are out. Mm. Um, a lot of the, st- yeah. So there's a, any number of reasons for things to be out, but for something to be in, it sort of has to be. What I call like, you know, when Kevin and I sit down and look for a rec, we we basically try to answer the question: Is it so EO? Is it like an EO company? Is it what you know what we think of as as an EO company? And if it doesn't. Right say yes to that then it's likely out that doesn't mean it's not a good company you might like it i um for me uh, so yeah again it, it's, it's all style right and, and i think um so csl for example never ha- has never ever made the share advisor scorecard now quite frankly it's beaten the market since we started share advisor so it's it's a in some ways a mistake for not having recommended it on the other hand you know if i'm looking at a business i have to be really comfortable that now, there's no certainties, right? So I'm not saying I'm always right. I'm not saying I only pick stocks that I know I'm going to be absolutely right about. But if I go look at a stock and say, right, do I have confidence? Do I have a reason for believing this company can beat the market over the long term? And that is company. It's the operations. It's the future plans. It's the current price. Or the, in CSL's case, it's been a really, really expensive stock on a PE basis for, for as long as I've been investing. And the growth never lived up to that. It's always been valued you know, statistically, academically, at, at, at too high a price relative to its growth rate. And so that's already, that's a half a half a cross in the box. The other one for me is I have to have some reason to believe and some basis for believing that the company can deliver the sort of growth that I want to justify the current price. And can it 
Yes, I guess. Um, but will it for sure? Like, you know, is, is it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know CSL that well. And think about how big it already is, right? So it's already the, it's the number two player, number one player in blood plasma and vaccines in the in the, in the world. Um, to get bigger than that. And to grow at X percent to justify the current PE, where is it going to get X billion dollars? I don't know the numbers. Maybe it's five billion dollars worth of sales from over the next three years. If I don't know that, if I haven't got a reasonable sense of being able to estimate that, I find it really, really difficult to recommend a company. Because if a member looked at me in the eye and said, the shares have fallen in half, what basis did you have for expecting it would keep growing? I can kind of go, well, I kind of extrapolated and hoped and thought and maybe it might. And, but I have, no, I have no strong thesis to why I expect that growth to continue. And for me at ShareAdvisor, that's, that's, a, that's a cross in the box. I, just, I simply can't look our members in the eye and say, I thought this was likely because. And if I can't answer that question, I can't recommend it. In A2's case, again, I've been wrong about, so thanks for picking two I've been wrong about. I appreciate that. Um, thank you, Dash. Um, for me, I've always worried about, so I have a, <laughs> I've told the story before, I think, Doc. Uh, my old man, when I was a kid, Used to have garlic tablets up the wazoo. He used to, you know, it was it was the it was the key cure for everything. It was the key preventative medicine for everything. Everyone loved garlic. Everyone was on garlic. There was garlic brands all over the place. He had a truckload of Blackmore's garlic, right? In the event, no one has garlic anymore. There's still a couple of brands there, but no one really takes garlic tablets now. If your if your business was, for example, Kyolic Garlic, which is one of the brands out there, they have boomed and busted because people walked away from the product. Kyolic couldn't go anywhere else because they were a garlic brand. Now, Blackmores has managed to, despite its recent problems, grow meaningfully over the last 25 years because it had a range of products and was able to take its brand in different product categories and um, joint health and fish oil and vitamin C and plenty of other options. My concern with A2 milk, thus far incorrectly, was if the A2 protein as, a, as an ingredient, as a brand, as a product, was no longer desirable, A2 milk can't really easily go into something that's not A2 protein because it's called A2 milk. Uh, now, it doesn't mean it can't, right? There's always, there's always ways. But to my mind, I was more concerned that if that changed, a la the garlic story, then A2 would be worth a heap less than it was currently trading for. Now, again, I've been wrong thus far. Um, so I'm not saying that I'm right to do that. But in terms of process, again, that same idea of, you know, that, that felt to me like a, a, a you know a reasonably um, existential risk, at least for most of the value of the company. If if the A2 protein was somehow proven scientifically invalid, or people just moved on to A3, or yeah, I'm, I'm kidding, there's no A3 protein, but you know what I mean. Um, moved on to something else as their preferred milk choice, oat milk, almond milk, whatever it was. Um, A2 oat milk is probably unlikely in my view. Can't, doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, but that was that was kind of the thinking, right? So I just simply said, okay, too hard for me. Feel like there's an existential risk there to the value, not to the company going broke outright, just most of the value if A2 became less popular. And so I gave it a miss. So those are, I like the fact you asked about specific questions, mate, because that are companies, because that gives us a chance to kind of highlight some of that some of that thought. Any more on that, Doc? Uh, no. I do have a different view on A2 milk, by the way. So again, we have different views of The Motley Fool. Um, that's why Doc's been right and I've been wrong. So take that for, for what it's worth and maybe join EO. All right, um, speaking of which, if you do want to join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, I think you should. I think you should go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. I think you should join Doc and Kevin if you're the sort of person who doesn't mind a little more risk, a little more spice with their investments in the hopes of achieving even better returns than average. That's certainly what Doc and Kevin have delivered thus far and what I reckon over time they'll continue to deliver with the occasional uh, you know, volatility as we all will suffer. We're not going to promise uh, stability. We're not going to promise everything's a winner. We're going to promise our best efforts and I see a process that I really, really like. So if you like that, if you like listening to Doc, if you like what he stands for and the way he invests, I reckon you should join him at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities for, as I say every single time, less than a cup of coffee a week. What are you waiting for? Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Mate, uh, one last question. From one Sean. more. Okay. One more from Sean. Okay. Because this is one that's 
by, well, you've talked about the companies already, but it's also really topical. So Scott and Doc, this is from Sean. The stock splits for Apple and Tesla over the weekend got me thinking so much that I decided to ask the experts. Does this mean the valuations for both companies have changed because their share prices have? Does it make Apple in particular a more attractive price at its current level? Or is this some form of stock market trickery that needs explaining? I look forward to your informative and humorous response. Full on. Now, Sean, don't, don't expect humorous stuff from us. We, we try our best sometimes, but uh, we don't do well under pressure, mate. So just leave, leave that one aside for us for the, for the time being. Um, mate, you, we've covered this. We've covered both companies. So I don't talk about the companies themselves. Let's just quickly give Sean and anyone who's newish to the market and wondering a stock split. Apple went from 400 bucks a share to 100 bucks a share, give or take, something like that. Hmm. Does that mean the shares are now 25% or 75% more attractive? Are they are they only you know 25% of the price these days? What's going on with the stock split? Well, so stock split doesn't change the – shouldn't change the fundamental value of the company because, I mean, it's basically taking a pizza whether you divide it into 10 pieces, 8 pieces, 12 pieces, 15 pieces. <laughs> yeah, it's right. still the same pizza. Right, right. Um, you, you, you know, but, but I think the uh, – I think what – creates this confusion is that there is this okay so the share price has gone up mm-hmm. and the stock has split mm-hmm. mental model says well i'm going to connect those two and say the stock price has gone up because of the share split and mm-hmm. therefore something has happened mm-hmm. right um and then there's a lot of stories around it i think i think that's it's mostly hogwash that has i think no basis in my view um large because more the two companies in concern announced the stock split along with their results, right? So there's some time, results and forward guidance, and I think this, it takes some time for those um, to work its way through in terms of, you mm. know, what's people's outlook and so on in terms of valuation. Mm. Um, there could be definitely some, you know, short-term trading that people are doing or sentiment trading that happens. But it's, it's, I just find it hard to believe that it, you know, $2 trillion company <laughs> would move because yeah. there are uninformed traders who account for point zero 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 one percent of the total volume of uh, of uh, of trade. So that yeah. that's my logical explanation to um, the relationship between sort of value and um, uh, value and the stock split. I do realize that when a company does a stock split, it does implicitly send a message, and implicit messages uh, matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the implicit message there is that our stock price is going to keep going up. That's why we are splitting it, and the market may take, or market market participants may take that implicit value or implicit message that the company is and and hold that mm. um, in their in their thought process. So that I think may matter. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's that's my view. So I. I think you know stock splits really don't matter. Yeah, Sean, just just to just to kind of double down on on, on Doc's point, um, the shares look cheaper because they are. The problem is there's more of them, and so it's the. I'm going to just double down on your your pizza analogy, Doc. If if you had a, if you had a pizza with a four slice and each slice was five bucks each, you know four five dollar slices to be a quarter of the pizza, right? So that sounds pretty good. If you cut that quarter of your pizza into five slices and sold it for a dollar each, guess what? You still have a twenty dollar pizza. Being more slices and twenty-one dollar slices are the same as four five dollar slices, the same as two ten dollar slices, and the maths continues on as often as you want to. It's in straight multiplication. So in stock split, they simply cut the pizza into smaller pieces, and each piece is then by definition worth less. Overall, you end up with the same amount because if you had hundred shares beforehand, you've now got four hundred. So that your your ownership doesn't change, the company's value doesn't change, just the the price of each slice, each smaller slice. Just goes down respond in uh, correspondingly to the size of the pizza. So no, um, the answer it does, is it more attractive? Well, 
I guess if you've only got $100 to invest and you want to buy one share of something, then it's more attractive and more um, affordable in that sense. Is it more attractive in any other valuation sense? No, absolutely not, mate, because you're simply dividing the same thing into more pieces and there's simply a lower price per piece as a result. It's all, all just very, very simple maths, um, sometimes hidden with all the jargon that we talk about, uh, but the basics, as if you think about a pizza, should explain itself that way. I reckon we're done, Doc. I think we're done. So... Before we go, do yourself a favor, do us a favor, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or podcast one. And if you like what we're doing, throw us some stars, give us a review, leave us a rating, tell your friends, get it tattooed across your forehead. No, no, don't, don't actually do that one. Just well, maybe tattooed across your, your arm or, or <laughs> your chest. Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere people can't see. Just if you want to do it, I, I can't say no. Look, you know, what you do with your own body is up to you. I never want to tell people what to do, but uh, if you do, it's uh, Scott with two T's and an E-Barn is A-N-I-R-B-A-N. Just, there you go. You can just you get it right. <laughs> anyway, we better finish this up. Let's do um, it. Don't forget, you can get a dose of Foolish just straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.